Well, let's turn to John's Gospel and to chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. Now, as you turn that up and as we study it together, uh, let me just pose a question for us. What kind of book is John's Gospel? Um, The first two sections that we've looked at, that Rog led us through, will lead us to conclude that John's Gospel is a book of great and grand themes. The prologue, for example, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, paints a magnificent picture of the divine word, the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who made uh, His dwelling among us, who became uh, flesh, light flooding the darkness. And then, uh, 119 to 34, John the Baptist, uh, this great preacher, great prophet, Uh, according to Jesus, the greatest man born of woman, points away from himself to one who is the greatest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all of these colors, all of these brush strokes, paint a magnificent picture of Jesus Christ, a magnificent picture of a magnificent Savior. So John's gospel is a book of grand themes, but it's also a book where we come up close and personal with the Lord Jesus. And today we do that. We meet people who met with the Lord Jesus, or more particularly, people that the Lord Jesus met with. And what I want you to have in your mind is last week and the week before, the big grand stuff and then the down-to-earth stuff. Really, if we had an hour and a half, we'd do the whole thing. But we're down to earth with Jesus today, but he's still the magnificent Christ. But you can meet him. You can know him. That's the point of chapter 135 to 51. Let's read these verses together. And they're quite uh, intricate as John retells what happened. So follow closely. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples. And he, John the Baptist, looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, presumably to the two disciples, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them, that's the two disciples, following, and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, and this is a strange follow up question, teacher, where are you staying? I mean, what travel lodge have you booked? Strange, isn't it? It's an odd question. And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, in other words, on the way to going to the travel lodge with Jesus. He found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We, that's uh, John and me, have found the Messiah, which means Christ, 
And he brought him, that is, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at Simon and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas and Peter are from the word for rock in Aramaic and Greek, respectively. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, that is said to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to Nathanael, come and see if anything good can come out of Nazareth, I guess. And then Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And if you were seen under a fig tree... Uh, that's where rabbis or learned scholars would study the Old Testament law because the fig tree was symbolic of Israel. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. I mean, it's odd that he gets to that conclusion just because Jesus saw him under a tree. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, and the you here is plural, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this just smacks of eyewitness testimony from John the writer. So let me pray for God's help as we study it together. Father, we pray, living God, that you would speak to us from your word and that we would encounter the living Lord Jesus. Bring us face to face with him. We pray that as we meet him up close and personal, our lives would be changed. For we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me immediately encourage those of you who are Christians not to switch off. This is not Jesus meeting people at the point they become Christians. There's all sorts of stuff here for those of us who are believers, perhaps slightly more, in fact, than if you are not yet a Christian. Now, the first people we meet or we see meeting Jesus are John, the writer of the gospel, and Andrew. And if you see on the back of the service sheet, under each of these encounters, I've tried to suggest what is the principle that we might uh, take uh, from it. The principles, though, are not as neat as I suggest. Um, we can't systematize how people meet with Jesus too much. But I've gone for Jesus who challenges us. Now, the name John is a common name today. It was a common name then also, which does lead to a bit of confusion as to exactly who is being referred to in these verses. Uh, one of my Bible commentators has a little footnote that says, 
Um, if you were making this kind of stuff up, you wouldn't have caused so much confusion with the name John in the New Testament. Just as well, none of them were John Smith. Now, read with me again, verse 35. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, that is, two of John the Baptist's disciples. Who are these two disciples of John the Baptist? One of them is Andrew. We see that from verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So one of them is Andrew. The other is 99.999% certain or 100% certain John, the writer of the gospel. Whenever there's a gap in terms of someone's identity in John's gospel, it's him. He's just kind of cautious of mentioning himself up front. So it is him, John and uh, Andrew. That's their names. What kind of people are they? What is their background? They are fishermen. Now just stop for a moment and get your heads around that the person who wrote or whom God inspired to wrote what we have studied thus far in John's gospel was a fisherman. So some of you come from the northeast of Scotland, fishing villages up there like Gardenston and Peterhead, I guess. That's where Jesus went to call this disciple who would write this gospel. Philip and Nathaniel, well, we don't know a lot about their backgrounds. Peter, he was also a fisherman. And just in case we think that that's the kind of people and only these are the kind of people that Jesus calls, later on in chapter 3, the learned scholar Nicodemus. Nathaniel is a, an Old Testament scholar. Samaritan woman, a royal official, licorice, all sorts. All sorts of ordinary people. And all sorts of not quite so ordinary people. Jesus calls the ordinary and the extraordinary. The poor and the rich, the famous and the obscure. Utterly indiscriminate. Now, Jesus, up close and personal, with lots, all sorts, his life relevant to everyone. Now, immediately, that, and to use a fishing illustration, gets a hook into you. You can't conclude, based on the evidence, that Jesus is not interested in you because you fall within the company of all sorts, all types. And you cannot conclude either that Jesus is not interested in somebody you know who is not a Christian because they don't fit the stereotype of who you think a Christian should be. Back to Andrew and John. What do we learn about their encounter with Jesus? Verse 36, he, John the Baptist, looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. So here's the picture. I'm John the Baptist. And then you two, uh, Andrew and uh, uh, John, come walking up. And I say to you, looking at me, I said, no, no, look, look at him. He is the Lamb of God. There is Jesus, the Lamb of God. And that's the orientation of the preacher, the evangelist, everybody, a Christian, is to say, don't come 
and listen to me. You need to listen to him. Christianity is all about him. It's not about the church. It's not about ministers. It's not about evangelists. It's about Jesus. Always about Jesus. And that's a striking, striking principle. It's a striking principle. When ministers retire, and that's not a hint, sometimes things called fetch shrifts are written about them, which are lots of people they knew saying wonderful things about them. The best fetch shrifts I have ever seen about ministers or evangelists who retire are books that contain testimonies of people who have met Jesus. That's what you want. And all of us as Christians, we want the fruit in our lives to be people who have met with Jesus. So John the Baptist says, not me, look to him. Look to him. You need to meet with him. And what did they do, John and Andrew? They followed Jesus. The disciples of John the Baptist became disciples of Jesus. And having turned to follow Jesus, Jesus then challenges them. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Or a better translation might be, what do you want? I mean, there's a letdown. The first words of Jesus in John's gospel, what do you want? What do you want? And Jesus' first question is a question addressed to every man and every woman, all of humanity, all of time, everywhere. And it's a question addressed to you as you sit here this morning under these spotlights. What do you want of me, Jesus says? And sometimes the question comes to us from the Bible, what, what, do, you, what do you want? What do you want? What would you like? Sometimes the question comes from Jesus, but most certainly, what do you want? What are you seeking? Why, why are you here? Why are you sitting here? Why are you here? And they said to him, verse 38b, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So why are you here? Well, actually, I'm here to find eternal life. I'm here to work out if you are the Messiah. I'm here to repent of my sins and believe. I'm here to sort out my eternity. Now, these things all come, but what do they say here? And isn't this very real? I don't really know what to say, so you've got to think of something to say. So wh where are you staying? Where are you staying? And really what they're saying is, I'm not sure. I need to think this through. Where do you live? I want to spend some time with you. Can I come and talk to you? I need to do that. And that's a process many go through in their response to the challenge from Jesus. I want to give this time. Now, let me differentiate between Jesus says to you, come, or he says to you, what is it you want? And you say, look, I don't know. I, I, I want to I spend some time working that through. That is taking your time according to a process that God is working through. That is very different from saying, not now. You see, there's a big difference between embarking on a process with Jesus 
that does admit that you have questions that you need answered and saying, sometime in the future. Procrastination, it's a big word, it means putting off, is, according to the saying, the thief or the stealer of time. And what that means is that you suddenly realize, aged 40, 50, 60, 80, 90, whatever it is, that you said, not yet, 60 years ago. <laughs> of course, that raises the stakes of risk. Jesus' answer to where are you staying, come and you will see. At a surface level, he is saying, come and see where I'm staying. But of course, he's saying more than that. He's saying, come with your questions, come with your doubts, come and you will see. That sounds awfully like a promise. Not come and you will enjoy with me a discussion together, or come and we'll see where it leads. He says, come and you will see. I know that you can't see properly yet because your eyes are cloudy, you're blind, you can't understand you don't have the answers to your questions. Come and you will see. Come and you will see. It's a promise. He seems to be saying, come and you will find the answers to the things that perplex you and confuse you. So how come a lot of people do come and they don't see? Because God is not saying to them in the way that he's saying, to this person, supernaturally, it's your time now to come. And you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Why does John tell us what time it was? I don't know. It's eyewitness testimony. It means it was four o'clock in the afternoon, which probably means that they spent the rest of the night talking about what it is that they wanted. One day we'll get to ask them about these conversations. Now, how can you spend time with Jesus? He is not here with us physically. How can we respond to the invitation, come and you will see? Now, the answer is not do a life explode course, although it might be. It strikes me when you see the poster out there on the street, life explored. That's a big deal on a Monday night. Come and explore the biggest questions of life and death. And what is the, what is the, inv the invitation? Is to, what is it you want? Come and see Jesus. Every week of Life Explored, seven weeks I think it is, you can come in week one, three, five, or seven. It makes no difference because it's part of a process. If you feel after week five, I should go along, almost certainly the question that week will be the one that you want to ask. That's how God works. If he's saying, come, and you will see. Or there are a lot of people in Chamas who would be delighted to read the Bible with you one-on-one -on -one in a coffee shop in Morningside. Notice I no longer specify a particular coffee shop. There are a great many to choose from. And sitting and reading a gospel book with someone is exactly what this means. 
or come to church. Come to a church where it seems to be that when you come, God is speaking to you. I wonder if some of you are here. I think maybe you are at the services today. And every time you come, and it's not all that frequent, it's just that I look out and I see you and I think, goodness me, here we go again. Here we go again. God is speaking directly. It's almost like these spotlights are trained on you. Now that's important. You recognize that if it's true. Simon Peter next. Jesus who changes us. Let's move on to 41 and 42. Read them with me again. He, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas and Peter are from the word for rock in Aramaic and Greek, respectively. Isn't it striking that the first thing Andrew does, so Andrew goes, uh, Jesus says to Andrew and John, what, what, what is it you want? What do you want from me? And uh, they say, well, where are you staying? And he said, well, come and see. And, and it means come and see, come and understand, come and have your questions answered. And so they're off to the travel lodge together. And as they are going, uh, Andrew says to John, just hang on a minute, I'm going to get Peter. So he goes off and he gets Peter. Simon is his name at that point. And notice the pattern, come and see. And then go and find. And t- that's evangelism. So come and see. What happens when you come and see? You go and bring somebody else to see. That's how the gospel has gone to all the nations of the earth. Come and see. It happens later on with Philip and Nathaniel. Jesus says to Philip, verse 43, follow me. In verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and said, come. Notice, too, the very close personal link between Andrew and Simon. They are brothers. That is a helpful reminder that evangelism is relational. Relational doesn't simply mean to our relations, or, although it doesn't exclude them, but relational in the sense of sharing the good news about Jesus, about the gospel with people we know, our family and friends. I mean, putting an invitation through somebody's door that says, come and see, is not quite the same thing as knocking on their door and saying, come with me and see. That's the point, I think. The normal pattern in evangelism is relational contact, relational evangelism. Why is it that when people come to church, we're really keen on people feeling welcome? It's because we want to build relationships. It's how people are introduced to Jesus. Verse 42, Andrew brought him to Jesus. Come and see, Jesus said to Andrew. Andrew brought him to Jesus. He goes to Simon, his brother, and he says, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ, and he brought Peter to Jesus. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. He introduced him to Jesus. Many of you are here because someone brought you to a church, brought you to Jesus. That's how you have encountered him. How are they going to come? How are they going to come to an evangelistic event or a Life Explored course if you bring them? You know, often we say that about evangelism courses. Why don't you come with your friend? I mean, there it is. Come with me. Come with me. Maybe that's a better line than if you go, I'll come with you. Just say, come with me. Come with me. Now, they might not all come. 
which you are thinking. I mean, if only it were this simple that come and me always uh, led to, yes, here I come. But when you say come with me, what you cannot do and what you need to trust will be happening is the spotlight will be on that person supernaturally and God will be saying come to them. You don't know that. You don't know that. Now, what might happen to them if you do bring them along? Verse 42 again, he, Andrew, brought him, his brother Simon, to Jesus. Jesus looked at Simon and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The name Peter means rock. Uh, I have this uh, dodgy commentary on my shelf, a little uh, commentary. Uh, the title is along the lines of, of, of flaky Peter who became the rock. It's not great, is it? Something like that. Or crumbly Peter. Now, what Jesus is saying here is looking at this man, Peter, whom he has never seen before, and he said, I see what I see, and I see what you're going to be. He sees with divine sight what you're going to be. And that's a striking thing, isn't it? Jesus looks at you now, and he says, I know what you're going to be in 10 years' time. Scary and exciting. The verse uh, in verse 42, Jesus looked at him, is an unusual word. The verb there is something like this. Jesus looked him over, or Jesus saw straight through him. He looks you over. He looks right through you. He knows all about you. He sees what you're going to become, the change he's going to bring about in your life. The change in Simon's name to Peter reflects the change that Jesus is going to bring about in his life. He will make Peter the rock. He's going to build his church on Peter's gospel preaching. What a transformation Jesus was going to bring about in Peter's life. It would take time. Peter's path to faith was a bit bumpy, but he came through it in the end. What does that mean for you? Jesus looks at you where you're sitting, and he looks you over, kind of dusts you down. And then he looks straight through you into your soul. And he says, I'm going to do something remarkable with that person. And why can't that be you? Why not? I might encourage you to go and see. Now, how different it might have been, all of that, had Andrew not brought his brother to Jesus. Now, I said this in the first service, I'll say it again, don't come up to me afterwards with some theological framework that says, God would have just done it another way. Maybe, but how do you know? On the face of it, on the ground here, how would it have been had Andrew not brought his brother to Jesus? As Andrew was going to the travel lodge to have his chat with Jesus, he said to John, I'm going to go and get Simon. He needs to hear this as well. And so he did, and Simon comes, and Peter becomes the founder of the whole church. What difference would it have made to the church had Andrew not got his brother to come and meet Jesus? And equally for us, it makes a difference when we do it. Philip, next, Jesus who commands us. Philip is great. Um, he is a, every evangelist's dream, as we'll see. Jesus who commands us. Andrew and John's encounter, Jesus teaches about challenging us. Peter, the Jesus who changes us. Philip, 
Jesus who commands us. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Philip was from the side of the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, we don't know much about Philip. He doesn't seem to have been a disciple of John the Baptist. He's not related, as far as we know, to John, the writer, or to the brothers Andrew and Simon. All we know is he's from the same town as them, Bethsaida. But who he was is not important. What is important is what happened to him. Notice first that Jesus found Philip. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. Andrew and John are pointed to Jesus by the preacher. Simon Peter is told about Jesus, brought to him by his brother Andrew. But with Philip, Jesus just finds him. And it may be that's your experience when you became a Christian. It may be that you're sitting here this morning or listening, and no one has brought you along. No one has told you about Jesus. You just find yourself here. You find yourself in the city. You find yourself in this church. You find yourself hearing from God. And it's almost as if Jesus has come to meet you where you are. Or maybe you've been in church for many years, but you've never met Jesus. I had a discouraging conversation with someone after the first service, whom I'm praying for all the time, and he said to me, you're spot on, I've been in church all my life and I've never met Jesus and I didn't meet him today either. It's strong, isn't it? At least it described his experience. Maybe you've never met Jesus and you've been in church all your life and today you find that he's whispering into your heart, follow me because he has found you. It's almost as if he's sitting beside you on the next seat. What does Jesus say to Philip? Follow me. What does the first thing Jesus say to John, the writer, and Andrew? What are you seeking? Jesus knew they needed more time. He knew they needed more time to come and see and to talk with him. But to Philip, he just went straight for the jugular. And he said, follow me. It is a command, follow me. Become my disciple now. That point comes for us all in the end. But right up front, Jesus says to Philip, follow me now. And what did Philip do? He did it. He could have waited. He could have questioned Jesus. He didn't do any of these things. He just followed him. And Philip, here's a quote from Dick Lucas after uh, what, 60 more years of gospel ministry. Philip stands for the many down the years who have not had great fears and doubts, who have not been dragged into the kingdom of God, kicking and streaming, who have not gone to endless courses to ask their questions, but those who have heard the call and have responded to it there and then and found their lives there and then changed inside out. Not everyone has to hear the gospel again and again and again to be changed. Philip knew it was for him and he responded there and then. Follow me. And then Nathaniel, finally, verses 45 to 50, Jesus who convinces us. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we've already commented on the pattern, the invitation to follow. The result is go and find 
and tell somebody else. Philip goes to find Nathanael and tells him about Jesus. What kind of man is Nathanael? Well, there are clues here. Philip appeals to him on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures. He says to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, the one of whom the prophet said is the Messiah, well, we've found who that is. It's that man, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 47, Jesus refers to Nathanael as, Behold, an Israelite, indeed a true Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. In other words, this man, Nathanael, is well-schooled in Old Testament law. Verse 48, Jesus speaks about seeing Nathanael under the fig tree. That's a reference to the study of the Torah, the law, which was traditionally done under the fig tree. So this guy is a learned scholar of the Old Testament scriptures, which is why Philip appeals to him on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures. That makes good sense. It's good apologetics, if you like. It's a good strategy, a good way in to this man's life. That's how you convince Nathaniel, speak to him about what he knows well. But he's not convinced. He is skeptical. Verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, if John and Andrew and Peter are the least likely converts, let alone the least likely apostles. Nazareth is the least likely place that Jesus, the Messiah King, would come from. Now, I will not give you a Scottish equivalent, but there will be no coffee shops, no Greggs, no post office, nothing. What John Buchan in his novels calls a one-horse dorp, not the kind of place you would ever visit. It's a nondescript town. There's no way the Messiah could come from there. That's the kind of man Nathaniel was. Now, don't jump too quickly to say he is skeptic in the sense of obtuse or just difficult. He is intellectual, he is able, he needs convinced. He is the agnostic doubter, the skeptic who needs to be convinced, or not so much the skeptic, that's not a good word, the questioner, the one who has questions. There are lots of people like that, different reasons for their questions maybe philosophical or rational, scientific, that cause you to doubt. Maybe that's how you are. Maybe that's how lots of your friends or colleagues are. You might have a, or need a different strategy to get them interested, to cause them to doubt their doubts. But like Philip, we want to get to the point with our friends when we say to them, come and see. And I think it's a very striking thing here. He has his doubts and his questions, Nathaniel. And in the end of the day, Philip says to him exactly what the others say. Come and see. Come on. Just come and listen. Come and listen. Come on, Nathaniel. I know you have your questions. I know you have your doubts. Come and see. And whether willingly or unwillingly, he goes with Philip to meet Jesus. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, so here's Nathanael walking up to Jesus. Neither of them had ever seen each other. 
And he goes, Jesus of Nathanael, behold, look everybody, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael, no doubt a little taken off his guard, said, how do you know me? How do you know that? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And then Nathanael, this doubter, answered Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? I think a better translation, the right translation, Jesus said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe. Now, what's the point here? In the end of the day, Jesus, I'm sure, would have sat down with Nathaniel and talked to him about his questions and his doubts. But Nathaniel believed because Jesus knew him. So if you're sitting here with lots of questions and doubts, and you feel that God puts this spotlight on you that's his Holy Spirit and sees you for who you truly are and understands you, knows you. Then come to him. Believe in him. And you will find that your questions and doubts will have answers. Rarely have I come across anyone over the years, who has their list of questions that they bring, and there are credible answers given to these questions, who then at that point says, all my questions have been answered and I believe. Sometimes that happens. What normally happens is another set of questions. It's when they realize that Jesus knows them, gets them, understands them. How do you know he knows you? You know when you know. What happens is the Holy Spirit makes this all alive to you. And that you're sitting here this morning and you're not kind of listening in every fourth sentence. It's like you are under that spotlight and God is speaking directly to you into your life, into your circumstances. Now, verse 51, to finish, is like a trailer for what's coming next. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The pronoun you in verse 51, uh, both instances is plural. Jesus is no longer addressing Nathaniel personally. He's speaking to the whole group. He's saying to them all, to Andrew and John and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, and anyone else who is listening, truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, I have something very important to say, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's uh, recalling an Old Testament story of Jacob, I think, in Genesis 28, who had a dream in which he saw a stairway uh, reaching uh, up from earth to heaven, and the angels of God going up and down the stairs. Jacob had his dream, the substance of the revelation was that God's covenant with Abraham was now being made with Jacob. God had promised Abraham that he would reverse the effects of the fall 
through his offspring. All people would be blessed through him. God would be with him and would establish him and his people in the land. And for Jacob, it was only a dream. For these disciples, Andrew, John, Simon, Philip, and Nathaniel, and all who follow Jesus, they will see the Son of Man in all his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these practical and powerful examples of people meeting with the Lord Jesus. We pray now that as we come to the Lord's table, you would take us to Calvary, to the cross, which is the way in to a relationship with the Lord Jesus. As he bore our sin and your judgment to bring us to God. So the invitation is to come and see. The invitation is to come to me, Jesus says. Help us, Lord, to prepare our minds and hearts as we sing. Help us to concentrate. Help us to listen for your voice. For Jesus' sake. Amen.